Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published quarterly by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, premiering March 13th, 2015, we'll be speaking with Hannah Ray Armstrong, Algiers-based fellow of the New America Foundation, about her piece in the winter 2015 issue, Africa's Last Colony, on West Sahara and its longest-running, most peaceful, and most forgotten anti-colonial struggle. We'll also spotlight other top stories in the issue, but first some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the website West Wing Reports. Was it just an effort to sway delicate nuclear talks, or is it, as some allege, treason? That's the debate swirling about the controversial letter sent by 47 Republican senators to the leaders of Iran, warning them that any nuclear deal they sign with President Obama might not last beyond his second term. The treason charge stems from an obscure law dating back to the presidency of John Adams called the Logan Act, which forbids unauthorized citizens from negotiating with foreign powers. And while it's unlikely that anything will happen to the GOP senators behind the letter, the incident has further exposed the rift between them and the White House on the direction of U.S. foreign policy. The president's reaction to all of this? Contempt. I think it's somewhat ironic to see some members of Congress wanting to make common cause with the hardliners in Iran. It's an unusual coalition. The letter comes as talks between the U.S., Russia, China, Britain, France, and Germany, the so-called P5 plus one, and Iran reach a critical point at stake, a possible decade-long deal to slow Iran's ability to produce enough highly enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon. White House officials continue to dampen expectations for a deal with Tehran, putting the odds at 50-50 at best. And while the White House does not appreciate what it sees as congressional meddling in Iran, it wants lawmakers' help in authorizing the use of force against the so-called Islamic State. Congressional hearings are now underway. The administration is pushing for a three-year deal and says bipartisan approval would send the message that America is united against ISIS. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. A battle cry of sorts in the world's longest-running, most peaceful, and most forgotten anti-colonial struggle from a tent city in Algeria by refugees from Moroccan-occupied Western Sahara. For 40 years, the Sahrawi refugees have placed their faith in nonviolent tactics inspired by the economic, diplomatic, and cultural strategy that built international pressure to end apartheid in South Africa. Most Sahrawi leaders say peaceful protest is the only way to reclaim their rights and survive to enjoy the staggering natural riches in Western Sahara phosphates, offshore fisheries, and lately located oil. But others in the exile community and some outside experts wonder if it can much longer resist a rising tide of radical Islam. 
Hannah Ray Armstrong, an Algiers-based fellow of the New America Foundation, considers that and related questions about the Sahrawis in the current issue of World Policy Journal. Her article is headlined, Africa's Last Colony, and I talked earlier with her about it. Hannah Armstrong, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thanks very much, David. It's good to be here. With what rationale and how much of Western Sahara did Morocco occupy? Uh, Morocco had what it considered a historical claim to the Western Sahara, but um, Western Sahara was under the control of Spain up until Moroccan independence um, and was known as the Spanish Sahara. So there was an indigenous movement against the Spanish occupation um, that began in the early 70s, and the Moroccans sort of staked their claim to the territory in 1975 with an event that's known as the Green March, um, where 350,000 Moroccans marched uh, into the territory that's disputed and, you know, escorted by 20,000 troops, um, sort of laid claim peacefully to this territory. Um, shortly after that, one month later, Spain, uh, as General Franco was laying on his deathbed, signed a secret agreement with Morocco and Mauritania, essentially dividing the territory into two and handing control over it to Morocco and to Mauritania. The next sort of step was the guerrilla war that had been started against the Spanish occupation uh, was directly transferred against the Moroccan and Mauritanian forces who had now come into the territory. And Mauritania withdrew in 1979 so you had this sort of drawn-out guerrilla fight between the Polisario Liberation Front, on the one hand, representing the indigenous Sahrawis, and the Moroccan army, uh, which had occupied the territory, uh, on the other hand. So that lasted up until 1991. Was there a kind of Cold War connection with this, with the Polisarios, their orientation? The Polisario um, was a sort of a non-aligned movement, you could say. It, it had this socialist, um, third-worldist liberation movement feel. But the sort of U.S. Uh, relationship with Morocco was very linked into kind of Cold War tactics at the time. How many Sahrawi stayed? How many fled over the border? And just where in Algeria are they now? Uh, it's, it's hard to get a precise sense of numbers. It's thought that today there's about 150,000 Sahrawis living in Algeria as refugees. Um, and roughly the same amount living in the disputed territory. As for location in Algeria, um, the refugees are all located in the a very far southwestern edge of Algeria, uh, an extremely inhospitable desert plateau, which is called a Hamada. Um, it's an area where water is scarce, there's no agriculture. Um, it's extremely isolated and difficult to access. And this is one of the reasons that Sahrawis have had a hard time building more support for their cause because they're sort of literally stuck on a plateau in the desert. After all these years, the refugee camps are still essentially tent cities, you say, for reasons both of morale and geopolitics. Talk about that. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a very strong sense that, you know, if the refugees were to start to try to build, you know, concrete and cement buildings and to invest in a more permanent way in the the refugee camp tent cities that they're currently living in, that that would sort of distance them from the cause that, that you know, really invests every aspect of their daily lives. Um, so there really is this constant idea that, you know, independence could come at any moment um, and that they shouldn't get too comfortable 
you know, in the desert, um, that this is really, even though they've been there since the 70s um, and have been waiting for a referendum since 1991, there, there is this sense that, you know, this, this could come to an end at any moment and that independence is just on the horizon. Um, so you have, you know, services, um, education and healthcare are extremely important and the refugees have invested a lot. A lot of foreign cooperation has, you know, poured in to sort of help um, the camps be as livable as possible given the difficult, you know, environmental um, conditions. But there is this sort of impermanence to the whole, to the whole structure of the six camps. Well, they're geographically isolated, but in another sense not. They send many young people out for education. They bring in foreigners for cultural events meant to entertain and also educate about their claim uh, to a Sahara homeland. Talk about that strategy, starting with the annual film festival. Yeah, that's right. Um, it starts when children are very young. The, the refugee camp administration um, starts encouraging them to go spend summers in Spain, for example, um, there is this really strong consciousness that, um, you know, it's important for especially young people to get out of the camps, especially in the summer when you have temperatures of, you know, 120, 130 degrees every day. Um, so it's on the one hand to sort of help the young people have moments of escape and discover the world and also to communicate about, you know, their situation. Um, so countries with populations who are sympathetic to the Sahrawi cause um, have been really generous with setting up programs where young Sahrawis from the ages of, you know, 9 or 10 up until, you know, college age um, can come and do various educational, recreational programs abroad. Um, uh, apart from that, you know, which falls under the sort of educational remit, um, you have these really fascinating cultural diplomacy programs, um, such as the Fi Sahara Film Festival, which is an annual film festival the world's only refugee camp film festival. Um, and that takes place, you know, each year in the Dakhla refugee camp where a giant screen is set up on the side of a truck uh, and films from all over the world are projected onto it. There's also a disinvestment campaign to put economic pressure on the Moroccan occupiers. How is it going? That's right. Um, you know, Scandinavia has been sort of at the forefront of the, of the divestment campaign. Um, you've had several Norwegian and Swedish pension funds divest from companies with investments in the Western Sahara, um, and most recently some Danish municipalities who, you know, having been sensitized about the issue, um, began to refuse what they started calling conflict salts that had been mined in the Moroccan-controlled territory. Um, so far, it's hard to measure the impact this has made on companies, and it doesn't seem to have been very significant. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a promising start, and that if this message was to spread, um, it might begin to have an impact on uh, investments. And where do the funds for the Sarawis' educational and diplomatic efforts mostly come from? The, uh, the state of Algeria is a big supporter of the Polisario movement, um, and, of course, is host of the refugee camps. So the state administration is funded to some extent by Algerian aid. Um, and Algeria, you know, has a long history of supporting decolonization and African liberation movements. So it views this um, relationship as, you know, being, being in that vein. Um, as for events such as Sahara, you have um, often European cultural organizations um, or individuals 
who have been really touched by the cause of the Sahrawis and have worked to set up, you know, cultural outreach. Um, so, you know, the Sea Sahara is run by a Spanish organization. Um, there's also an international arts festival that takes place in the camps each year. Um, and these sorts of cultural outreach programs are usually the product of um, a relationship that struck up when someone visited the camps and wanted to, you know, try to help on a regular basis to bring the message um, outside the camps of what was happening and to also bring outsiders into the camps to see for themselves, you know, more about this political cause and, and this people stuck in the desert. Opposing the Sahrawi claims is the royal regime of Morocco with massive military might, financial and diplomatic support from the West, including the United States. Talk about the extraordinary lobbying Morocco does <coughs> in Washington to maintain support for its occupation of Western Sahara. Sure. Um, Morocco is, uh, you know, considering that it's, it's, that poverty is quite extensive in Morocco, um, it's surprising to find out that Morocco has spent $20 million lobbying the U.S. since 2007 on its political plan for the Western Sahara. Um, the, you know, I think that the way that partnerships with the U.S. and, or alliance, the alliance with the U.S. and France have really helped Morocco is, um, you know, stonewalling within the U.N., for a referendum that was promised in 1991, um, which is generally assumed to benefit the Sahrawis if it were to take place. The Sahrawis have been waiting for this and laid down their arms uh, on the promise of, of this referendum. And Morocco has managed to sort of stonewall it um, for the past 20, 20 odd years. Um, and you know, most recently, the United States has announced its support for the Moroccan autonomy plan for the Western Sahara which would essentially move outside of the uh, logic of um, independence and a referendum um, and would sort of accept de facto Moroccan control of the territory um, under the promise of decentralizing uh, the administration and, and lending more autonomy to the territory. So the U.S. backs this, this plan, has announced that it finds this is a, a credible plan for the future. The Sahrawis reject it. Morocco has also uh, redefined or, or delayed the uh, response to a world court ruling about the right of the uh, Sahrawis to benefit from all those natural resources being exploited in Western Sahara. Right. The Moroccan argument is that, um, you know, as the administrating power, um, it has the right to exploit the resources that are in the territory in such a way that will benefit the people of the Western Sahara. Um, you know, for, for the Sahrawi refugees in Algeria, the last person or, or entity that could define and act in their best interest would be Morocco. Um, so there is, you know, certainly a, a very strong dispute over um, the legality of Morocco uh, exploiting resources in the occupied territory, in the Moroccan-controlled territory. I mean, it's, you know, according to international law, it's illegal. Um, but Morocco has been able to exploit a sort of loophole um, in the form of the Corel opinion to, you know, justify its continued exploitation of resources. Do any of the rulings or, uh, or votes in the UN uh, suggest that the Sahrawis in the refugee camps could benefit from these resources or only if they can establish some sort of recognized homeland back in Western Sahara? The, the resources, as, to the best of my knowledge, would only benefit the Sahrawis 
you know, according to the Moroccans, would only benefit the Sahrawis living in the territory. Um, so the Moroccans are not, wouldn't send aid or, or funds to Sahrawis in the refugee camps. Um, and Sahrawis in the refugee camps, you know, will not entertain uh, the thought of going back to the territory until there's a political solution that they find just and, and in, keep, in keeping with the fact that this is, you know, one of the last non-self-governing territories in the world that the UN still considers as having been not decolonized. Given all the decades of frustration for the refugees, it seems inevitable that radical Islam would take root, and Morocco has charged that Sawari refugees were involved in some regional terrorism. Uh, you found that was not true. Absolutely, and I have a lot of experience in the region, um, you know, including Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Algeria, and Morocco. So I've really been in all of the neighboring states um, and have seen, you know, the extent to which um, locals have become radicalized or have gone off to, um, you know, Iraq and Syria most recently with the Islamic State. Um, the numbers, you know, if you look at the a study that was done recently on foreign fighters, there were 1,500 Moroccans who went off to um, join the Islamic State. Um, you know, the number of Sahrawis, you know, my information is that um, out of a handful of Sahrawis who participated in the jihadi occupation of northern Mali uh, two years ago, um, most of them were, were born in the Moroccan-controlled uh, territories and did not actually come from the camps at all. Um, there's a few sort of factors that I think explain this. You know, there's this, it's this strange phenomenon where these refugee camps in the middle of the desert where one might expect to find more desperation, um, more vulnerable youth, um, happens instead to be this sort of bastion of, of hope um, that seems relatively fortified against this, the spread of radical Islam, um, which is which certainly, you know, an unusual and unexpected thing to find. I credit this to a couple of things. One is the role of women in administering the camps. Um, the, you know, women's role both in traditional Sahrawi society and in the modern running of the state and civil affairs um, is extremely strong. And you have, you know, within the education sector, all of the teachers are women, all of the Quranic teachers are women. Um, and I think that that sort of is one very strong pillar against um, the spread of outside, more conservative influences. Um, and I think one other factor I would, I would cite is that I think there's a lot of hope in the camp. You know, again, maybe contrary to expectations, given how long they've been waiting um, and how trapped they are, you find a really surprising uh, level of optimism and hope among these refugees. You know, they really expect um, their independence to come soon and their liberation to come soon. And I think that that also has created a sort of buffer against um, the spread of, you know, more nihilist, um, warlike, you know, influences of, of religious conservatism. But some of the refugees with whom you spoke were fearful of jihadism taking hold, uh, if so, Ari's take up arms for them <coughs> finally. How do you see it playing out? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there is a very real spread of radical Islam throughout this region. Um, you know, there, there's one more indirect way in which there's perhaps a threat, which is young Sahrawi men going off to make their fortune might be, you know, swept up in trafficking, which is a very lucrative um, Saharan career uh, in, a, in a region where there are very few lucrative careers. Um, and trafficking has had a very um, concentrated intersection with um, the spread of, of jihad and religious 
conservatism throughout the Sahel. Um, I don't see, you know, religious Islam figuring into the independence movement at all. Um, you know, the movement is very um, political, and although all the Sahrawis are Muslim, um, they have a sort of a relatively secular political ideology. Um, but I do think that, you know, one of the one of the advantages to solving this crisis um, would be that you would have this population and a state that would be able to really sort of improve security in a part of the desert that people haven't, uh, you know, neighboring states really haven't been able to um, get control of. So, you know, were these Sahrawis able to return to their home and set up their own security apparatus um, and have, you know, their own state, I think that we could expect certain improvements in security um, that we don't have so long as this remains a sort of humanitarian refugee crisis. Um, also, the sooner the, the issue would be resolved, the sooner, at least in theory, Morocco and Algeria could cooperate on security issues. Um, so that's another strong incentive for trying to resolve this issue. Hannah Armstrong, thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Hannah Ray Armstrong is an Algiers-based fellow of the New America Foundation. Her story about the Sahrawis is Africa's last colony in the current issue of World Policy Journal. Also featured in the winter 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on Putin power and the EU, Russia throws down the gauntlet, on a political prisoner's cry from Crimea. Plus tune into next week's podcast as we talk with Yosef Duvok about his article Redrawing Europe's Map on the Rise of the Right and Other Key Shifts in Voting Patterns. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.